Charles, I'm really glad to be here. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate. Uh, when I looked at the speaker lineup, it was really cool because both Charles and Jim, and of course I love Rob too, but Charles and Jim were trained by a speaker that came and spoke at the church that I was at when I was a little kid. And so I can really express true and honest admiration for these guys. I'm so thankful to be able to be included in a lineup that has guys that have impacted me and impacted my ability to pastor and my ability to to share the faith, but also to defend the faith. So um, you are going to be blessed. Um, sorry that I'm the one who starts it off, but don't uh, measure everything by what you see from David Van Bever. I'm going to set my water bottle down here. I'm so short, it'll get in the way for these people over here. So I don't want to do anything to distract them. So I'm here to speak today on the need for apologetics in the church. And uh, I want to begin this discussion by just telling you three little stories, three little simple stories that all have to do with laboring. I just thank you so much for that prayer. That was a great kickoff. Because when I think about apologetics, I think about laboring, the labor-intensive work that it is. So here are three little stories from my life. When I was 17 years old, it was my senior year of high school, and I wanted to go get a job at Burger King. And my dad said, no, Dave, you don't want to work at Burger King. That would not be a good deal. Why don't you call a local farmer and see if he's got some work for you to do. So I called up a hog farmer and he said, sure, Dave, come on out and work for me. And so I made a huge mistake right off the bat, though. I have to make sure that I tell you that huge mistake that I made right off the bat. My huge mistake was I thought when he told me, Dave, when you go into the hog buildings, you're going to get this smell on you uh, and you will never be able to wash it off. I thought, Ain't nobody ever tried as hard as, in the history of the world, tried as hard to wash that smell off as I am, so I'm going to make sure I get that smell off. And, and I was dead wrong. You can chemically burn your hands with dishwasher detergent, and you might burn the skin off your hands, but your hands are still going to smell like hogs, so just in case you ever wondered. But while I worked there, I saw this, like, incredible trajectory, right, of people who would come in and work, right? We'd have someone come in, they'd work for like a day. One guy worked for half a day and they just quit. No call, no show, they were done. I mean, that was it. They were done working on the hog farm. And after about three and a half years of this incredible cycle of guys who would come in, and right, the boss paid really well. I mean, we're talking like, this is 2001, 2002, and he was paying me $10 an hour, right? So, I mean, that was a huge deal. But the guys would show up, like literally one guy showed up, he worked for probably an hour, he hurt his hand, got in his car and drove home. And I was like, Steve... Like, what is the deal with all these folks working? And he said something that still, you know, remains true to me. He said, good help is, is hard to find. Good help is hard to find. There's story number one. Story number two. And you can go ahead and hit that second slide, Daniel. Thank you so much. Third slide. Goodness. Uh, when I was 
21 years old, I was going to Southwest Baptist University, right? And Southwest Baptist University was a little expensive to go to, and I am so blessed. My dad's a pastor. There's five kids in my family, and my dad said, Dave, when you go to college, I'm not going to be able to help you. And so I was kind of nearing the end of my time, but man, I just didn't have enough money to pay for tuition. So I sold my pickup truck. I borrowed a skateboard from one of the guys in my dorm. I got on that skateboard because I wanted, of course, to have some vehicle around campus. It's not near as safe as walking, but it is faster. But I got on my skateboard and I skated right down to the recruiting station. Signed up for the United States Army Reserves, right? In a few days, they took me down to, to MEPS. Now, if you're in the military, you know what MEPS is. It's a, an, acronym, an acronym for Military Entrance Processing Station. It's where you go in and you get a cognitive exam, you get a health exam, you get a physical exam, they check out your eyes, and you come in with like, I don't know, 500 other people that day. So there's a ton of waiting, right? And I was probably 10 hours into the day. And I remember this senior enlisted guy comes in. And if, for those of you who don't speak military ease, that's basically a sergeant, an, a non-commissioned officer who's been around for a long time. And he comes into this room of these soldiers who are basically complaining, right? And he looks at all of the guys, and it was actually guys in the room that I was in. There was, I don't remember there being any ladies. He looks at all the guys, and he has this kind of mad face. And he's like, not everyone can wear this uniform. Not everyone can wear this uniform. And he walked out kind of arrogantly and pridefully. And so there's story number two. Number one, again, good help is hard to find. Number two, not everyone can wear this uniform. All right, story number three, I promise, and I'll be done telling stories, right? Story number three, right after I graduated from college, I got a job doing sales, door-to-door -door sales. I absolutely hated it. I mean, it was terrible, so bad. I mean, I put in my two weeks, but I had no plan for what I was going to do next. So no money was coming in. Um, I was on my own. So my cousin suggested that I go down to the day labor station. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get there at 4.30 a.m. I'm going to get my name on a list of day labor appointments, and I'm going to work all day, and that'll be really good. So I got there at 4.30 a.m., and there were already people standing in line waiting, right? So I signed my name on the piece of paper, and then I sat down. And I sat down from about 4.45 until 2 p.m. in the afternoon, and they never called my name. I was so frustrated. But it taught me something, right? Cheap labor or labor without commitment is easy to procure. So there you have it. Good help is hard to find. Not everyone can wear this uniform. Cheap labor is easy to procure. In other words, without commitment, it's easy to grab people, right? So now you're probably asking, like, Dave, nice stories, right? We didn't come here to have you tell us stories. What does that have to do with apologetics or the need for apologetics in the church? Well, let me just go with you to God's word, and let's look at Matthew chapter 9. And do me a favor. I mean, we've been standing, but let's stand again in honor of God's word and, and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to begin at verse 35, and we're going to go to verse 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to the, his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me pray real quick. God, you are good. You are the one who sends laborers. You are the one who gives us the commitment, Lord, to you. You are the one who holds us steadfast, Lord. I pray, God, that you would allow these words to challenge us today. God, even as I preach, Lord, remind me of their truth. Convict me of my failing. Lord, draw us to you by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may sit down. All right, let me do just a little bit of pastoral stuff here because I think it's really important. Uh, my favorite podcast is the 83 Weeks podcast, and it has this uh, the former president of World Championship Wrestling, right? And now you're like, he's a wrestling fan? What are we going to do? I'm really not a wrestling fan, but I was when I was little. So I listened to this show about all these old wrestlers, and I just think it's so great. And it always, I don't know, I really would never listen to the podcast except for when I was probably in sixth grade until the time I was a freshman in high school, I would never miss Monday Night Nitro by WCW. And so this guy talks about that little time in wrestling that I remember. But the guy on the podcast, Eric Bischoff, always says, context is king. So let me provide just a little bit of context because we are just kind of jumping into Matthew's gospel and I don't want to do a disservice to you, uh, but more importantly, I don't want to do a disservice to God's word. So let me give you some context for why I believe this actually does apply to apologetics and a labor that is apologetics, right? It's very, very important to me. Um, God, the gospel of Matthew, right, is probably the first, if not the second of the gospels written. Um, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, right? But from the outset of Matthew's gospel, there's this picture of Jesus as the one who fulfills the covenant, right? Given to Abraham, to David. Also, he's the fulfillment, right, of this incredible promise in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, I would contend with other scholars that Matthew is selectively looking at narratives that point to the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that we've seen throughout the Old Testament, right? So as you go into this verse, and as I begin to unpack it, I want you to remember that Jesus's main concern is the sharing of the reality that he is the Messiah who has promised to come. Now, in this immediate context, at the start of the chapter, Matthew has just been called to be a disciple, right? Matthew Levi, probably the author of this text, right? He has been called to be, again, one of the disciples. It's following the, um, it's following the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has done some amazing things. He's calmed the storm. He's uh, cast out demons. He raised a young lady from the dead. And now what's going to happen here right after this is Jesus is going to call the 12 disciples. He is going to send them out as great commission people. But before he does that, he actually presents, here's the need. Here's what you need to do. So let's begin to kind of unpack this and let me do the best I can to answer the question, why does the church need apologetics? And I'm going to say that the church needs apologists and needs apologetics because apologists go, apologists give, and apologists gain. Apologists go, give, and gain. Let's look at this first idea in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Let's revisit that. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus was going and he was proclaiming the kingdom. In other words, Jesus went, he saw, he went and taught, 
and he went and healed, apologists have a very similar calling. Now, Jesus was not shy, obviously, about going into areas and talking about the gospel. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus makes it very clear, right, that the gospel is here, repent and believe the gospel, is some of the first words from Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark. He was doing that. But Jesus didn't just go out randomly. I think if we had a poll here today, we'd say, who says we should go? And we'd be like, yeah, we should go. But one of the problems that we have in apologetics is sometimes we just jump into things. Jesus didn't just randomly jump with two feet. In fact, actually, we can see even in the context here that as Jesus went, he was observing. He was looking at the cultural context and the needs of that culture, and as he was going, he was observing. It makes me think a little bit about Numbers 13, right? When God tells Moses to send out the, tw- send out the 12 guys who are from the tribes of Israel to go and spy out the entire Canaanite land, right? He sends out 10 of them, right? Or excuse me, 12 of them. You, you remember a little bit about the story of the Canaanite conquest, right? You see, here's what I want to remind you. Great Commission people, people who are serious about defending the faith, they don't just jump headlong into a situation. They observe what's going on. Apologists observe. They want to take in. They want to collect information. The church needs people who are culturally aware of the worldviews that they're going to come into contact with. In the words of, you know, some simple person, people need to know what's up in the hood. He's observing the fact, though. Jesus is observing the fact, and it's also very, very relevant to the message of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is observing that the leaders have failed, right? The Jewish leaders are failing to shepherd their people. Churches have to have apologists who are immersed in the culture of their communities. We have to know what is going on around us. We cannot, and apologists cannot, shepherd in their churches if they do not know the wolves that are lurking on the edges of the flock, and they cannot be used to bring in wandering sheep if they don't even know the culture that they're going into. Jesus was observing what was going on. You see, there's an interesting thing here. Jesus is in stark contrast to those guys who went into the promised land in Numbers 13. When he observes, he sees bad things, and then he says, let's go. Jesus didn't find good stuff when he took out the gospel. Friends, the church needs apologists because great commission people must know in order to go. Apologists need to observe. The first calling after you get the great commission calling is to find out what is going on. We need to be part of the culture that lives around us. We need to be part of the people that live where we live. We need to know what's going on in the immediate cultural context and in the overall cultural context. And guess what? When we observe our culture today, we're not going to find good stuff, are we? But we need to understand the mindset of those we come in contact with, the worldview from which they are approaching reality, because we need to know their spiritual needs if we're going to minister to them rightly. You see, when an apologist goes, they are going to see likewise that it is impossible for them to actually fulfill the Great Commission in and of themselves. They must be reliant on the Lord. So Jesus didn't just go and see. 
right? He, excuse me, didn't just go. He went and saw. But Jesus also did something here. We see it in the context of verse uh, 35. Jesus went and taught. Do you see? Observe, then go and teach. You know, I think a lot in my life about a pretty simple question. I mean, I really do. And I have some folks here from my church. I say it frequently. What is the gospel? I always think of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But if you've spent any time in the church, any time in a Southern Baptist church, you have no excuse to not have a ready answer for the question, what is the gospel? If you're proclaiming it, you need to be able to defend it, so you better be able to articulate it. Jesus went and taught something that he knew. Notice that he didn't teach false worldviews. He taught the real worldview. I love what Mark Dever says about the gospel in Nine Marks to a Healthy Church. We don't do the gospel. We proclaim it. And the gospel is news we proclaim, not about what we're doing, but about what God has done and is doing and will do. Often this causes me, when, it thinks about, when I think about the call of a great commissioned person and an apologist to go and teach, it causes me to think a little bit about Acts 16. It's one of my favorite books, right, the book of Acts. I just love the book of Acts. See, I, I teach public speaking as well, and there's more speeches in the book of Acts than there is in any of the other books of the Bible, right? Did you know that there's 25 actual little sermons slash speeches, right, 10 major speeches in the book of Acts? All of them are apologetic, by the way. And when you read them as a defense of the gospel, the two-edged the two sword that is the gospel to defend and also to go into, there's this beautiful picture in Acts 16, right? And you can turn over there with me if you'd like, Acts 16. I'm just going to look at verses 6 to 10 as we think about this call to go and teach. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up from Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mythia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Gospel-centered people, gospel-centered apologists are listening for gospel-focused requests. Jesus went and taught people who were in need of teaching, who were actually calling out to it. You see, in Jesus chapter 9, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus saw the greatest need of these people was a spiritual need. Paul had a vision in the night where people were calling, come, please tell us the good news. Do you not think that today there is still a similar call on each and every one of us to go and destroy unbelief? The need for apologists in the church is because apologists, they hear that call. I love the movie Forrest Gump. Anyone ever seen Forrest Gump? Shame on you who have not. I love it so much that someone from my church actually bought me a T-shirt when she was on vacation, right? And I don't, even, I don't really even like to wear T-shirts with much stuff on them, right? So I've, I wore it to church when I was on vacation so I could, you know, kind of slum that day, right? Uh, but I love the movie Forrest Gump. And one of my favorite scenes right there um, in Vietnam and 
foresters and it started raining and it rained little bitty stingy rain big fat rain and like he talks about how it rained forever right and then all of a sudden it stops raining and Forrest Gump is like and then it stopped and for about two seconds then all of a sudden the Vietnamese began to attack Forrest and his platoon right and Forrest remembers that really awesome information that Jenny had given him right you know it Run, Forrest. And so he said, and I started running. And so then he says that he realizes that he's all by himself. And he's like, I got to go back and get Bubba. So he says, oh, then I went back. And there was text. And he said, help me, Forrest. And so I grabbed text. And then I went back. And there was Detroit. And I went and grabbed Detroit. And then there was Cleveland. And I went and got Cleveland. And then, of course, he gets Lieutenant Dan. And then he goes back a last time. And he gets Bubba. Friends, there is a reality that apologists are going into a culture of death. And you might be like Forrest, trying to find your Bubba, but you're going to run into all kinds of folks. And guess what? If you truly believe that we are pulling people from the culture of death, if you truly believe that people are dead in their trespasses and sins, you're going to be grabbing folks as you go into the danger zone. Jesus is sending these guys out into the danger zone. J.C. Ryle says this, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worthy of nothing. Taking the gospel to folks is always risky. Mark Devers says, if you think that the gospel is all about what we can do, that the practice of it is optional, and that, the con and that conversion is simply something that anyone can choose at any time, then I'm concerned that you'll think of evangelism as nothing more than a sales job where the prospect is to be won over to sign on the dotted line by praying a prayer followed by an assurance that he is a proud owner of salvation. Jesus went and observed, he went and taught, but here's a beautiful thing. Apologists, just like Christ, we get to go and heal. Have you ever noticed that wherever Christianity goes in a culture, we're always building hospitals? I know we've got some folks from Springfield, right? So, of course, we have uh, our Mercy, I believe it was Mercy Hospital that used to be St. John's, right? Uh, then, of course, I'm from a little town in Manhattan, I'm a little, little town of Manhattan, Kansas. We had a St. Joseph's Hospital. Right? Wherever you go, Christians have this amazing desire to see people well. In fact, just so you know, whenever you pass a medical building or go to the doctor's office, you always see that snake on a stick, right? Anyone seen that? You know what I mean? It's the medical sign. Well, where did they steal that from? Well, they stole it from Numbers chapter 21, where the people of Israel were like getting bit by snakes, and God's like, oh, build a snake of fire and have people look at it. You see, gospel people, apologists, actually care about the needs of those people around them. Why? Because Jesus did. When Jesus was faced with those things that he observed, he recognized that the greatest need of those people around him was that they were dead in sin, and apologetics is dealing with the deepest sickness to ever face man, the deadness of sin. Jesus went and saw. Jesus went and taught the gospel. Jesus went and healed. And just so you know this, 
I'm totally pointing to the fact that Jesus is, of course, the one who is going to drive out every affliction and every sickness and every disease. And so an apologist relies on Christ to be like Christ. Apologists are also those who are giving. What do I mean by that giving? Look back at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion. The folks were helpless and they had really bad leaders. You know what? It didn't take Jesus very long to see in the faces of those that he stood across from that there was a serious issue. Those folks were in seriously dire straits. And he had compassion on them. The church needs apologetics because apologetics is compassionate. I have to catch myself here, right? I was so blessed last night when Charles and I walked out of the catfish kettle. And thank you guys so much for paying for my meal at the catfish kettle. That was awesome. Great catfish. I really enjoyed it. And as we walked out, by no mere coincidence, by God's sovereignty, who do we see walking up to us in their white shirts and ties with their badges? Two Mormon elders. And of course, I have this real problem. Like, I, I seriously do. I was on the speech and debate team at Southwest Baptist University. I love to argue. I love to study argumentation. I like to line out arguments and demonstrate either how they're fallacious or they're inconsistent. I just love doing that. And so the first thing that generally snaps in my head when I see a Mormon is, I can't wait to destroy their worldview. But of course, I was with Charles, and he is compassionate. Apologetics is compassion. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about destroying someone's worldview. While Paul does say we destroy arguments and put every thought captive to obedience to Christ, apologetics is compassion, and it's driven by compassion. Jesus went, and he saw their lostness, and it hurt him. They were like folks without a shepherd. Dear friends, Jesus looks at the people who are dead, and he sees the impact of their sins, and it hurts him. Let me tell you something. My problem last night, of course, there were other people who then walked by who reminded me by their near, mere presence, be compassionate. My problem is, and one thing that apologetics should always guide, and why I love this text as an apologetics text, is that Jesus had compassion. Let me tell you something. I'm not near enough like Christ, and I'm reminded about that every time I sit across from an unbeliever. I'm reminded that I don't, in and of myself, have the humility and the compassion that I should have. The church needs apologists because when they sit across from the lost person, when they go out and observe, they're hurt for the lost. They have sorrow for the lost. I always love the story, of course, of the good Samaritan in John 10, and I could read that whole text to you, but let me just remind you it's a great text, but why? Because the guy had compassion. And friends, I tell you, we don't care anything about the Good Samaritan story if we are not driven in our apologetic approach by compassion for the lost. We recognize the image of the God who made us and the image bearers that we sit across from when we engage them in the truth of the gospel. Why? Those people were helpless. 
Let me just say something really quick, and I mean it in great sincerity. You cannot have the compassion of Christ if you're not walking with Christ. The church needs apologists, and the church needs folks who will go into unbelief because it drives them deeper into their love for the Lord and their, their knowledge of their own inability. And friends, I can tell you, you cannot expect to see people and their spiritual needs met or to gain compassion for them if you are not walking with Christ daily. Apologists cannot expect to have the compassion of Christ on others if they do not know the Christ that they're supposed to be leading others to. If you're seriously seeking Christ, you're serious about defending the gospel because you have compassion on those who do not know it. And those folks in that verse, they were without a shepherd. They did not have someone to point them to God rightly. And we live in the exact same place. We live in a society that tells you that you are your own leader, you can choose your own destiny, you are the captain of your own ship, but we present a gospel that says God is sovereign. And let me tell you something really quick. If you run into someone who says they're the captain of their own ship, you should be compassionate enough on them to recognize that if they're the captain of their own ship, they're, stealing, they're steering themselves right directly to hell. And Jesus saw those people who didn't have a real spiritual leader, and he had compassion. And of course, whose fault was it? What was the religious people's fault? It goes all the way back to Ezekiel 34, really, is Jesus uh, is, of course, emulating. And as Ezekiel says, the religious people were not shepherding the people right. Man, that can go right as a critique against the church today. The church needs apologists because shepherds aren't shepherding right. I will never forget uh, when I was at SBU, we had this assignment in my spiritual disciplines course, right? You had to go and interview someone from a different religion. And I really didn't know a whole lot of people of a different religion. I mean, I was a pastor's kid, so all the folks I knew really were pretty much Christians or they were nominally Christian, right? But there was a deacon at my church, an old farmer, and he had a son who was a Jehovah Witness. And so I went to him, Eugene Jones was his name, and I said, tell me about what happened, and could you set up a meeting for me and your son? And he said, well, here's what happened, Dave. Here's how he became a Jehovah Witness. A guy came to his door, and my son didn't have answers for the questions, so he went to his pastor and his pastor didn't know how to respond to any of the things that this guy was saying. And so my son, who wanted to study the Bible, went to this guy who had all the answers. The church needs apologists because it keeps pastors in line. It's a gift to the pastor. Friends, we have more access to God's word than any other culture. You can listen to all of the Bible uh, as a, boy, that is quite the wind, isn't it? <laughs> You can listen to scripture. You can listen to church history. You can get access to more preaching and more tools to equip yourself than any other time in the history of the church. But many people in the church would rather spend their time on TikTok, watching their favorite sports video, or watching that incredible video of Mentos and, Mentos and Coke. Is the Coke bottle going to explode when we drop Mentos into it this time? I don't know. Yes, it will. I'll just give you the answer. 
Friends, I tell you right now, if you're spending more time watching sports videos on YouTube than you are spending in God's Word and the teachings of Christ, your eternity is going to be hell for you, literally. If Facebook is your favorite book and Twitter is your favorite reading material and your time is consumed on TikTok and you're sharing more memes and you're sharing the gospel, then friends, in the words of that great theological film, Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. Jesus had compassion. Jesus saw that those people were helpless, and Jesus saw that they had wicked leaders. The church needs apologists because we need to speak truth into all of those areas. Last piece here. Gaining. Going, giving, gaining. Look at verse 37 and 38 with me again. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus was about gaining real kingdom laborers. Apologists are laborers. One of my favorite pastors of all times is Paul Washer, right? So really love Paul Washer. Uh, I am definitely not going to give you a Paul Washer impression because I would fail it. There's this amazing sermon where he talks about how he was speaking in a church conference like this, and afterwards some young man came up to him and said, oh, Brother Paul, I, I want to be, be a missionary. I want to go to Peru. And, and so Brother Paul says, well, tell me about your prayer life. And the guy says, well, I don't really pray all that much. Well, tell me about your devotion life. Oh, it, it's really not all that great. Tell me about the last time you shared the gospel. Well, I haven't really shared the gospel. And Washer says to him, to keep it brief, then they don't want you in Peru. Friends, if you are going to use the title apologist, and I would encourage every one of you to use that word. When people say, are you a Christian? What do you do in your church? I'm an apologist. What? You have an amazing opportunity. You all have a role. You're here because you're being serious, but let me remind you, if you're going to use that mantle or use that mantra, then dear friends, be in God's word. Be on your knees. You see, the most important meeting for those who are going to be apologists in their church is their prayer meeting. We should have calluses on our knees. Some people would say that I'm being really mean with that, but dear friends, let me just say we must pray earnestly if we are to be serious, if we are going to really be able to gain, if we truly believe that the harvest fields are ripe for the harvest, if we're truly going to be laborers for the kingdom, we must be prayers for the kingdom. And to quote Donald Whitney, he says this, this much we know, Jesus prayed. Luke tells us, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? I love Acts chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, and they prayed, and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. The church needs apologists because apologists are prayers. And let me tell you something right now. If you've sat to minister the gospel to someone, you know how hard it is that you must pray, God, I don't have enough wisdom. Man, you want to know why I think many apologists, professional apologists, aren't any better? And I mean this sincerely. It's because they're not real prayers. You want to know why I'm not near as good at apologetics as I should be? Because my knees don't have calluses on them. 
different the church needs apologists because apologists take very serious that call to pray for laborers. Christ tells his people that there are tells these people that there are folks who are ready to respond to the gospel. All they need to do is pray earnestly. I mean, do we really want to be apologists? Then we need to be serious about petitioning the Lord of the harvest to raise up more laborers. And I like simple things. I like real easy things. I'm not a real bright guy. In fact, the Mormon that I talked to, I said, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me. And he confirmed it. He said, yeah, I have. I was like, amen. He really did. I think he meant it as a slight, but I was like, see? (laughs) If you seriously believe what Jesus has said here, you recognize that an apologist is really not all that special. In fact, I would say all Great Commission people are also to be apologists for the Great Commission. And you might say, if we're all apologists, then, then apologetics isn't all that special, or what's all that special about apologetics? Everything. It's a Great Commission person. Every Great Commission person is to speak belief into unbelief. One last little piece here. To reach the world effectively, says John MacArthur, to reach the world effectively with the gospel, believers must be able to defend the faith. And sadly, many Christians are unable to do that, having little or no understanding of why they believe what they believe. The church needs people to proclaim Christ boldly, who have committed to prayer, to God's word, and to study. Why does the church need apologists? Because we're laborers for the kingdom. And friends, God's word often leaves me unsettled. It leaves me unsettled because it reminds me of my sinful position before him. And God hates my sin, and I must hate my sin too. And so often my sin is that of complacency. You see, if I was going back and I was all by myself walking out of that great catfish kettle with Charles, I probably wouldn't have even engaged those guys. Oh, I need to get over to Charles's house. Guess what? They waited for me. I'm grateful. Man, I was so happy the last day that I worked at that hog farm. I didn't have to smell like hogs anymore. It was incredibly pleasant. In 2013, I was really glad in November of 2013 when I got my honorable discharge from the army. That was amazing. Hangs on the wall, not hangs on the wall, it sits on a shelf in my office to this day. And I was so glad when I came home from that stupid day of sitting around for the day labor position, I never went back there again. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes this, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Why are we here? We're here for the defense of the gospel, and that is a job that will never end. The church needs apologists because the church needs laborers who are going, giving, and gaining.